I think that we imagine suffering through the lens of our brokenness. And I think God imagines it through the lens of redemption. And I think it's not until we begin to enter into the path of redemption that we also begin to have our imagination transformed about what suffering actually is and what its potential purpose can be when Jesus is at the helm rather than me. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist, a speaker, and the author of several books, most recently, The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. In this episode, Kurt and I talk about what it means to be hospitable to your own suffering, engaging suffering as the way of redemption, and the role of storytelling in mental and spiritual health. Kurt Thompson, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thanks for being here. Jonathan, it is great to be with you. Uh, always just a pleasure to talk about anything, but uh, <laughs> really, really grateful today to be yeah. here with you. Yeah, well, I'm excited about your uh, your new book, uh, The Deepest Place. Uh, hmm. What's the subtitle? Help me out. Suffering and the Formation of Hope. Yeah. Um, hmm. You say in the uh, in the introduction that the purpose of The Deepest Place is to help readers to imagine and engage suffering as a way of, not not as a way, as the way to redemption, as the mm. way of redemption. Mm. Can you talk to me about what that means? Suffering, it, it, helping people engage, yeah. imagine and engage suffering as the way of redemption. Yeah. I think what I mean by that uh, is not to say that, uh, you know, God was sitting around one day and thinking, hmm, how can we redeem people? Oh, Here's what we'll do. We'll really put the screws to them. That's that's what we'll do. That'll that'll be the way forward. Um, uh, what I mean by that is, um, I think that uh, to live in the real world, the world that we actually occupy, uh, to live in the world that the God of the Bible has made, um, means that we have to. Uh, confront, contend, the reality, uh, first of all, of, uh, we, we might say at the very first, if you look at the first two pages of the Bible, we would say we confront the reality that God's intention is for us to partner with him in uh, creating and curating beauty and goodness in the world. Mm-hmm. That's, what we're, that's, that's, our, that's what we were made to do, and to do that with joy and all the things. And then you get to the third page of the Bible and you discover we've, you know, we humans, as it turns out, don't do that very well. We do that really, really poorly. And when we and and, and the actions that we continue to take, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like I, original sin. I don't know that I really needed original sin because I think I'd, I'd come up with it on my own if I didn't have original sin. Like I, I could be the originator of it just as yeah. soon as Adam and Eve. But the point being that. Uh, our behavior is such that in order for like the world is so full of the potential of beauty and goodness that when we humans uh, take from the tree of good and evil, which I'm doing continuously, you know, I, I have to contend with that all day, every day, that in order for me to uh, move back to the first two pages of the Bible to to. to like it, it is going to require me to like the the moving toward God necessarily is it's going to involve suffering. Mm. 
it's going to involve it. Uh, because the movement toward beauty and goodness is going to require me to shed to like, you know, like Lewis's character, Eustace, who Oslin yeah. is like peeling off the scales. If I really want to be me, it's going to be a painful process in getting there yeah. because of the nature of the way the world actually is. And because of that, I would say that the, though then the but but like my very proclivity is to want to avoid suffering that like he, he, the suffering I see. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a result of my sin and brokenness and so forth. That's true. But I also therefore want to get rid of it. I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I and what we I think fail to see is that even that consequence, the suffering yeah. of our choices, um, God is like he he doesn't waste anything. And so even my suffering, he is going to use as part of the process of transforming me into a person of beauty and goodness. Like it's, it wouldn't be his best plan. It's like, again, he's not like looking forward to this. Yeah. It's not that I, I'm excited. God's excited about our suffering. But this notion of like, this is the way the world is. And God is even going to use that and redeem the suffering in the process mm -hmm. by using it to draw me into a place that expands my imagination into places I could heretofore not get to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's helpful. The, the way you, you put it in terms of it's not the original plan. It's just, it's just a, a necessary result of, of the kind of world we live in. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I sometimes, you know, tell, especially young people when I, when, you know, when I was teaching, I had college students, I'm going to tell my own, my own people, you know, every day you have to choose between pain and shame yeah. because all the ways we have to avoid pain, I think they all lead to shame. Uh, I'm, I, yeah. You're the person to yeah. ask if that's an okay thing to say. Um, and I always say, you know, choose pain right? between, between pain and shame, choose pain rather than shame. Yeah. Another example is if you sprain your ankle, because I, if I sprain my ankle, because I was doing whatever, um, the process of healing of my sprained ankle is not going to be a fun process. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, the very, you know, the swelling, the heat, all that, that, is, that, that is so uncomfortable about my swollen ankle is, in fact, the body's immediate movement toward healing. Mm -hmm. And there is a yeah. sense in which my suffering uh, gives me another set of choices. My suffering gives it continually gives me another set of choices and I can work really quickly. And, and it's a tricky balance because do I, I certainly suffering for suffering's sake is not the ideal. This is not God's idea. Suffering for suffering's sake. Yeah. The question is, what am I going to do with it when it is unavoidable? Hmm. Yeah. Um, one question I had for you is, is you, in that formulation I just I quoted a little while ago, you say suffering is the way of redemption. And you, you had to choose between saying the way of redemption or a way of redemption, and you chose the. Mm -hmm. That's or, That implies that this is the only way of redemption is suffering. Is, is that is that what you mean? Well, well I, what, I, what I mean is that Jesus did not say, if you want to follow me, go pick up your Tesla and come after me. <laughs> okay. He's very explicit. I mean, the, the reality is that, you know, we, we like to say that we suffer for three reasons. These these are, you know, we, and in, the, in the book, I talk about these three reasons that are it, they're generalized. But for the most part, these are the three categories. 
we suffer because of things that happen to us. Uh huh. We suffer because of things that we do to ourselves, which by volume is the largest category. Okay. And we suffer as a result of our choosing to turn toward Jesus. Hmm. Interesting. And there uh, are ways in which we, you know, we, we can't really do much about the first category. Things happen to us that I, I can't control my, you know, a disease process, an accident, a, somebody sexually abused me, so forth and so on. Yeah. The second category, there are some things that I can do about that. And in fact, this is where most of our trouble comes from. We have a great deal of suffering that we experience that we would like to believe doesn't have to do with us. But then when you, upon closer examination, we see that, you know, multiple micro moments of every day, I make choices. Like you were saying earlier, I make choices to do certain things that create suffering for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, but, but if I'm going to give up those things, uh that in and of itself will uh there will be a certain element of suffering involved in that if i'm going to give up my addiction to whatever yeah there's going to be a certain painful withdrawal effect uh-huh. that comes from that this is what i was talking about early all yeah. the the, tur- the turning toward the light i you know it's like you walk out of a dark theater at two o'clock in the afternoon into a bright sunny sky and you're like you, you have to get used to the sunlight because it's so bright yeah. and that's what it means for us to do that and so what, I, what I'm suggesting is that, again, in, in the world that we really occupy, not a fanciful world in which I'd like to believe I shouldn't have to suffer, that there shouldn't ever be suffering, mm-hmm. that, that it's all only ever wrong. I'm just going to eliminate it. In, but rather in the real world, for me to follow Jesus necessarily is going to involve crucifixion. Yeah. And um, and and so the again the question becomes what am I going to do when suffering when I find my find that it's upon me what am I going to do with that am I going to and by this I don't I don't mean suffering that we can do like I have a headache so I take Advil and I get better I do I need to just suffer for the sake of having no we're not we're not talking about that we're talking about this suffering from which we can't get out from underneath yeah okay yeah. I think maybe this helps uh, explain something that was bothering me a little bit about. Uh, about the idea of suffering as, as the way of redemption. That is, I, I assume you agree that to alleviate other people's suffering is a good thing to do. Is mm-hmm. that is that fair to say? That's very yeah. fair to say. Okay. Yeah. And the check. am I not taking away a, a path, a way of righteousness when I alleviate another person's suffering? So this is, this this is um, something that I would say is uh, you, we like to say that evil is parasitic. It doesn't right. exist on its own. It waits for good things to happen and then like comes and ruins the parade. <laughs> and this is not unlike this, right? I mean, we the the, the notion of healing people alleviating people suffering, of course, is exactly what we would want to do. This is what Jesus did. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and he doesn't just alleviate Lazarus. Uh, a parent, you know, but, you know, Mary and Martha's suffering and the mm-hmm. friends and so forth. And then, but we have to contend with the fact that, like, so, for example, uh, when he uh, heals uh, the woman caught in adultery, yeah. he's alleviating a certain suffering that she has contended with because, you know, 
And we read that story and it's easy for us to just stop right there. It's like, oh my gosh, he's so heroic. Like it's gonna be so great, except that if we really wanna pay attention to the story, when he says, go and sin no more, I wanna know how she gonna feed her kids. Yeah. Right, she now is gonna enter into a life that is gonna have elements of it that are not going to be easy. There is gonna be a certain suffering that takes place. You have a man in John 9, he's not even asking for healing, and Jesus heals his blindness, and then all hell breaks loose for this guy. At the end of this story, he gets put out of his community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yes, we want to alleviate suffering, but Jesus himself is the one who is saying, look, to turn toward the light is necessarily going to involve things that you're not going to like. Mm. Along the way of healing suffering, though, we would say that, you know, like I was saying earlier, evil loves to then join this party and say that the healing and the alleviation of suffering is the end game. Yeah. Without paying attention to the fact that redemption is the end game. Mm. Um, and redemption necessarily requires certain things that when we enter into it, there will be certain, you know, I mean, th I, the number of patients that I take care of who they are working on the healing of their own stories that have largely been the result of the families of origin in which they grew up. And now the families, the family systems in which they grew up are not liking them very much. Yeah. So you're alleviating a, a kind of suffering that then opens them up to, to have more redemptive suffering. Right, exactly. And so we would say, gosh, if you if, if you're having if if, if there is a way to re relieve a, a person's suffering from depression or anxiety or their gallbladder attack or their cancer or there's a, well, of course, we're going to do that. Yeah. Of course, we're going to do that. But that's all taking place against the backdrop of the larger thing. Look, Lazarus, he gets to die twice. Like, how fun is that? <laughs> yeah. Right. So yeah. like one has to wonder. Like, and Lazarus was sick for a while. Yeah. Right. And so like Lazarus comes back from the dead and every like we're all like happy about this. Yeah. And Lazarus I, didn't I, ask to be brought back from the dead. No, he doesn't. And like we're all like, I think this is a good thing. OK, we're all amazed. And if I'm Lazarus, I'm like, huh. Yeah. Right. And so, again, um, I think that we imagine suffering through the lens of our brokenness. And I think God imagines it through the lens of redemption. And I think it's not mm -hmm. until we begin to enter into the path of redemption that we also begin to have our imagination transformed about what suffering actually is and what its potential purpose can be when Jesus is at the helm rather mm -hmm. than me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a phrase you use that I, I find uh, pretty striking, and that is uh, hospitality towards suffering. Hmm. And the way you use it is is not being hospitable to people who suffer, although I'm sure that's also something you approve of. Uh, but you're talking about being hospitable toward your own suffering, right. welcoming it. Right. Um, the do you have any, any more, how would you how would you clarify the idea of hospitality toward suffering? Well, the examples, you know, so many of these of what is in the book, Jonathan is, you know, coming out of the experiences of the people with whom I work. 
Yeah. And, and one of the things that people will discover uh, is that, um, you know, they're doing this work of the soul. They're doing this work moving through all uh, a range of different neuropsychiatric issues and behavioral issues and family system, all the things, uh, medical issues. And um, there will be a certain sense in which uh, they begin to suffer, perhaps in certain ways. And one of the more common responses that people will offer to this is somehow I shouldn't be suffering in the way that I am. Somehow I should have gotten over this somehow. I, and not to mention, you know, the fact that, you know, we we all kind of like fall off the wagon at times in terms of our sinful behaviors. Right. And I do something and I, and I come back and say, like, why the heck can't I get this right? Mm hmm. Why the heck did I lose my temper again with my kids? All, all the things that, that we do that we then, and there is a certain suffering in this. This like I, to which we would say, we want you to not be uh, condemning mm -hmm. the suffering. We want you to take a breath and be hospitable to it, to welcome it. And by welcome it, we're not saying, oh, we want you to uh, enjoy suffering, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when Jesus says, hey, um, when someone asks to take your outer garment, give them your inner garment as well. He does not say, and you need to like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he's aware like this is not like I don't want to give him my my inner tunic. I don't, I don't want to give that to him. I'm not liking it. To love my enemy is not to like the action I'm necessarily engaged with. Like, there's a certain suffering in this. I don't like this. Um, but the act of being hospitable, being hospitable to that act, and even to all the conflict that I have in, okay, yeah. take whatever, <laughs> transforms me. Because one of the things that I come to discover is that, oh, I can actually weather this thing that is hard. And I come to discover, and as we talked about in the chapter on perseverance and, and how we move from perseverance to character, I come to discover that this perseverance, this endurance of this painful experience, whatever this is, in the context of community in particular, right? Because this is what we're talking about, that we, we read these texts and I think, oh, this is just me by myself without recognizing that Jesus and Paul are all talking about the family, the body of believers who are doing this work together. Mm -hmm. That when this happens, I become a different person. Yeah. I become a person of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the spirit. I Because this is what God is doing. God is not on a mission to just make sure I'm happy. Happiness, even in the best sense of the word, is something that I become as a result of what God is turning me into. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I think it should be the other way around. I think first I should be happy. And once I'm happy, I'll be happy to then be the person God wants me to be. Hmm. Yeah. And that's just not the way it works in the world that we actually occupy. But we also, again, we live in a world in which all the messaging is that we shouldn't be inconvenienced. We shouldn't have to wait. I shouldn't have to delay gratification. I certainly shouldn't have to suffer about any for any reason. For any, nobody should ask me to do anything I don't want to do. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. No, no, there, no demands should be placed on me. And we have all kinds of, you know, social and cultural ways in which this is now like just mushrooming. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the pandemic comes along and pulls the curtain back on our fragility that we have been practicing becoming. Yeah. We've been practicing becoming fragile because in one respect, because I'm really doing everything I can to not have to suffer. Um, even in the face of those spaces and places where the kind of suffering that we're talking about in the book actually serves the purpose of creating within me greater resilience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, let's, let's talk about storytelling because the storytelling is so important to what you do hmm. and important to, I mean, both in your work as a writer and as your work as a, as a, <laughs> a counselor or, a psychiatrist. Um, and so it, here's an interesting, what I think is a, a pretty good place to start. If, if you don't mind me reading a passage from your book, I, sometimes in these podcasts, people let the author read their own passages, but you know, this is my podcast. So I'm going <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, you say just I because I, re I read in the Bible that suffering can somehow lead to hope does not make me any more optimistic that it's possible, let alone likely. Such belief is drowned by the other voices that constantly tell me that I should be able to have life how, when, and where I want it. I should not have to suffer. And if I do, the message is clear. There's something wrong with the world that is not doing for me what I deserve, which is really what you were just saying. But you're really talking about competing narratives, right? We've got a, we've got a narrative that, that God offers in the Bible and, and, and that, you know, suffering as a, as a way of redemption. Um, which we perhaps can agree in our head with, mm. and it's it's drowned out by these competing narratives. Um, mm. And your your work is the work of telling the truer story, mm. um, and hopefully for many of us, it's yeah. our work to tell the truer story. Unfortunately, mm. you know, marketers' job is also to tell a story, <laughs> and they're really good at it. By the way, yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, the floor is open if you have comments about that, or we can, I mean, you kind of, in many ways, covered some of this material already, some, some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I, I love your, I mean, what, and I, I, your notion that we're talking about competing stories. Mm -hmm. We're really talking about stories. And, you know, one of the, one of the first, uh, yeah, eventually, one of the questions that we get around to asking patients uh, pretty soon into the work with them is, in what story do you believe you're living? What's the story you're, and many, many patients, you ask them that question, like, what are you talking about? Mm. You're the fish that hasn't thought about water. Right. I mean, they're, they're like, I, I, what's that got to do with my depression? What's that got to do with my, right? And so, you know, I, I've <clears throat> I give this I've given this example publicly, and I wrote about it in my last book. This this <clears throat> you know a patient of mine who comes in and he's wildly successful at what he's doing, and is uh, you know he's bought and sold two companies. He's on his third, and people that work for him love him, and um, but he's anxious, 
And he's not sure why he like he suddenly started to have this anxiety. And so we start down the path, the common path, and just, you know, tell me what it was like growing up in your house. And his first words, I, uh, I grew up in a loving Christian home, yeah. which, of course, is code. Right. Then he, like it's just standard code for like, you know, be alert to what yeah. is really underneath. What, what like we don't really know what that means. And for some people that, you know. Well, here's what it meant for him. I said, so who was in charge at some point? I said, like, so who was in charge of discipline in your house? And he went on to talk about how uh, his parents, his father was a deacon in the church, but his parent, his mother ultimately needed to be in charge of discipline because uh, this, my patient had a sibling who was really kind of off the rails. And uh, whenever that sibling would become unruly and his father would get involved, he became violent. Mm. And um, so this person spent a lifetime, the first two decades of life, working really, really hard to make sure that you know, being a peacemaker and trying to keep his head down and all the things, working really hard to make sure, like reading the tea, like, the tea leaves, like everywhere, right? which, mm -hmm. you know, which means he's really attuned to lots of people about what, how do we make, how do we make everybody be okay yeah. with everything? Really effective at this. And uh, but then I, I, I said, I guess it's really interesting to me that when I the first question I asked you was like, tell me about your childhood. And you said, I grew up in a loving Christian home. Help me understand how it is that that's the story that you tell. Now, this is an example of how there are words that just tumble out of our mouth automatically when people ask, tell me about your what was it like growing up in your house? And you say that. And it's so automatic that you don't even know that you're saying these words, but your brain hears it, your heart hears it. This is the story that you are telling as a way to cope with the real story that was taking place. But it's like we say, as far as the brain is concerned, if the fish that I caught was 12 inches long, but the longer I tell the story, the longer the fish becomes, at some point, what I'm actually practicing in my mind becomes the story that happened regardless of the facts on the ground. And consequently, um, and, and this is taking place all the time. And so we now live in a world uh, that has a particular story that it wants to tell. It wants to, it's, it's, it's the same story that evil was telling on the third page of the Bible. Uh, God doesn't love you. God, you're, you're not going to get what you want. Uh, your brother's not going to get what you're, you're Your brother's going to get more than you're going to get. This is the, the message to Cain, right? And so you've got to get what you're going to get what you need to get while you can get it. Cause otherwise like things are not going to go well for you. And so, and so then we, we devolve into what we become and, and, and here we, and here we are. Yeah. But, but that's, that's, that's the, re that's the story that we live, that we actually live by. And so for me to hear a sermon, a 30 minute sermon on a Sunday morning, uh, that tells me one thing. Yeah. But then I go out into a world in which I've been trained to expect my orders from Amazon to arrive the day before I make the order, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, in which I expect to click on a button and I, I immediately get what I want online. Like I, the, the whole notion of my needing that, 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 uh, that to be formed into a durable professional human being requires delaying gratification like a sermon is not going to be able to compete with the world yeah. yeah, unless I am actively practicing immersing myself in the story of the world that the Bible tells. Mm. And that means I'm immersing my story. I am immersing myself in the text. 
I'm immersing myself in prayer. I'm immersing myself in other things that are helping me really pay attention to the way the world really is so that I can then live in the real world. I'm reading in the first page of, a, of, of Peter's second letter where he talks about like, this is what you're gonna have to do in order to escape this world of lust. And, and, and it's not just about sex, right? It's, it's about lust for everything. Yeah. I just like, I, you know, and then he goes on to list all the things that you're gonna have to do. And he's like, oh, you mean I'm gonna have to like work at this? <laughs> yes, and the work requires effort. The work, if, if I wanna be a great golfer, if I wanna be a, like, I'm gonna have to make sacrifices. There's a certain suffering that's going to take place because there are things I'm gonna not get to do that I wanna do. It's gonna be hard to give up. Yeah. All the, like you, to our writers, right? Writers gonna sit down and write and writers gonna suffer. Yeah, because they're going to they're going to have days where they just stare at a blank page. Yeah. And they're going to have to combat the voices that say, I didn't do a thing today. And it's going to be important for them to have other voices in the community that well, wait a minute. Yes, you actually did. Yeah. You stared at a blank page today. Yeah. Which is like that day of staring at the blank page was necessarily going to have to come. Mm -hmm. in order for you to do what you're going to do. And so like, there, but there is a suffering, which I have to contend with this, which is why the issue of community is such a big deal in mitigating this and helping me have a different experience of what this suffering is about. It doesn't eliminate it, but it mitigates it. Yeah. You know, the, trans, for, yeah. I, I know in, in my early years as a writer, um, self-loathing worked pretty well. You know, if I would be, I would be, I'd feel so bad about not writing that I would just pop out of bed and write just to feel better about my, you know, and then right. I reached a point where it just didn't work anymore. It's like no, no amount of beating myself up was enough to get me back to do it anymore. Uh, yeah. I needed sooner, sooner or later, you will not be able to take in enough cocaine to get the high you want. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so those, you know, everything you've been you've been describing in terms of, you know, the stories that even even in the man you described who um, you have to suspect that. I mean, don't just suspect. I think you were you were saying a lot of his success in business was because he developed some skills in coping that really worked right. for a while. <clears throat> That's right. And shame can be very motivating until yep. it isn't anymore. And until That's it, right. it just buries you. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I, I want to go back uh, a few minutes to something you said. Um, when you encounter somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about, when you when you say, what story do you live in? And they have mm -hmm. it's never occurred to them that they live in a story. Mm -hmm. um, is Do you have any kind of shorthand that helps people understand, oh, yes, you do. You do live in a story like when people have no concept. <laughs> Of what that is is there a mm -hmm. is there a short way of communicating what that idea means what story do you live in yeah i mean it's it's just i mean when i say shorthand i don't mean like oh three words but i mean like we would say look as as creatures whether you believe in the bible or not i mean as, as creatures um you know you we develop and as a, 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 unlike unlike other animals uh i mean we don't, we're not aware that they do. Like we say, unless you're in a C.S. Lewis novels, you know, <laughs> other animals aren't telling stories. But this notion that eventually we as humans, we develop language. 
you say, well, by your time, you're one year of age, you have one word, two years, two, two words, three years of age, three words, and then you're starting to make sentences because then you say, oh, well, because, you know, you use language to make sense of your life. First, we sense things, then we're making sense of things all the time. And you say, like, you can imagine even right now, we'll say this to a person. So even right now, you're probably having thoughts while we're talking. There's a part of you that's having thoughts, wondering about what am I going to say next? Yeah. yeah, all the things like we're like we tell stories. And so for the, it's, it doesn't take much for people to capture the idea and, and to buy the idea that we are narrators. Mm-hmm. That we're, we're telling stories all the time and they and they buy the idea pretty quickly that they have to tell stories in order to survive. Yeah. And sometimes those stories include words and sometimes those stories include feelings and sometimes those stories include just actions of the body. I walk across the floor and the story that I tell is that the floor is going to hold when I do. Yeah. Just like in a movie, right? It's music and it's the visuals, right? That's telling the story. It's not just the dialogue. So, so people get like, oh yeah, I, I, I tell stories. And so I wonder then, what's the big story for you? What's the story that you're telling that helps you better comprehend like why you're here what's the story like uh, like one of the one of the <laughs> one of the quickest ways we get to this is i ask people so tell me about what your eschatology is and of course they're like my what <laughs> I don't know, what, what, like what are you talking about like oh what's the story that you tell about how it's all going to end for you hmm. oh i don't i don't i don't i don't know i don't i don't think like, oh yes you do you have you have on your back shelf you have the last two chapters mm. written whether you know it or not and those last two chapters that you have written in are on the back shelf that have yet to be incorporated in your story those chapters are driving what you're doing right now you're just not paying attention to what you've already written what you've come to believe and you've come to tell that story with lots of help because as we like to say as human beings nobody ever tells their story by themselves i am always a collaborator i'm always a co-author i can be the lead author but i'm never the only author even of my story yeah and so then we start to ask well like do you like the story that you're telling about how your life is going to about how like it's all going to end and sometimes people say well yeah i'm going to die and i hope to go to heaven someday like and then you start what does that mean and what's that going to be like? What do you think that's going to be like? And like, wh- how, who told you that? And so once you, w- once you, um, once a person is willing to buy the notion that they are storytellers at all, yeah, it's then not too long of a journey to uh, in, in to have them seeing that they're telling that there are elements of their story that they've been telling in ways that they're just not paying attention to over time. And then they begin to put the dots together to see that, oh, the way I tell the big story in and of itself is driving a lot of my behavior and and a lot of my expectations about the way the world should be. And I expect, as it turns out, that I shouldn't have to delay gratification. And I expect that my wife should behave in this way and this way and this way. And if I'm a pastor, I believe that my church should do this and this and this. And men and women should do this and this and that. And all the things yeah. that are part of the story that we're telling that we're often not aware that we are doing so. Yeah. Isn't, isn't it amazing how quickly we get from I expect this to I deserve this to I'm mad at somebody that I'm not getting what I. Oh, dude, like I, I, last last week, today, last week, 
I'm, you know, my wife and I are to be on a flight at 8.30 in the morning to Texas for a weekend retreat that I'm one of the speakers at this retreat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got the text from my airline at two o'clock in the morning that I didn't see that my 8.30 flight was canceled. And uh, need, need I say more? Like, it, <laughs> I, you know, I was, uh, I don't know that it would have been easy for me to call myself a Christian. <laughs> In the ensu in the ensuing hours. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, all right. I, I want to explore another storytelling related matter. Um, hmm. At one point in your in your book, you speak of um, suffering. At, I don't know if you call this a working definition or what, but suffering is the frustration or the thwarting of desire. Yeah. Um which is a helpful way to think about, you know, how suffering works, this mm -hmm. gap between what I expect and what I get mm -hmm. um, or what I hope for, what I get, or I'm not sure what the right language is there. Um, and, you know, somewhere in the world right now, there is a writing instructor in a, in a room with writing students saying, now think about what does your character want? And how is that desire being thwarted? And then what are they going to do to, you know, this is just straight up storytelling advice, you know, that this being aware of desire and how that desire is thwarted and how that drives human behavior. Suddenly that I thought that was a question and it, it's now it's not sounding <laughs> like a question now. <laughs> well, it all it's all true. What you just said, it's, it's true. Yeah. Um, it seems I, yeah, to me. I'm just right. interested in this connection between um, suffering in, of course, a story that a piece of fiction that doesn't involve suffering is is not going to be a very compelling story. Right. Um, we're interested in how people, how their desires are thwarted and what they do. Well, I, well, I, I would say I would say that like that, that's that is absolutely the case. And I would say that it's the case that we are otherwise not interested in it. Because those stories that involve suffering are telling our real story. Yeah. It's not just because, oh, that's an interesting thing for human beings to read. Mm -hmm. It is because it is resonant with me. Yeah. You know, a story where there's no suffering, like, I don't know who that cat is. Because, like, <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean... Think about what happened. Uh, you're probably old enough to remember the uh, the Superman movie where he flies around the Earth backwards and makes time go back, and so his yeah. his suffering gets reversed. Right, right. I mean, I was pretty young when I saw the movie. I'm like, I hated that. I was even yeah. when I was very very young. I had sense enough to know you just ruined this whole story, right? By talking right. about somebody who didn't have to who didn't have to deal with suffering, right. You know, right now I'm 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 uh, I'm working my way through Genesis, and I'm I'm sitting in like 37 and 38 or 36 and 37, and the these are the two chapters. One that tells the story of Jacob's. This is the story of Jacob's family. That's how it starts. This is the story of Jacob, and then it starts with all the things about Joseph and how like the kid he was, and how he drove his brothers crazy, and his all the things, and then and then you know he gets sold off to Egypt, right? Yeah. And then that is followed. Immediately, it takes Judah and tells the story of Tamar. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sitting with these two chapters, Jonathan, over the last two days, and I'm thinking, 
okay, if 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 we don't, if if you're if you're just if you're just there and you're not, you know, 2,500, 2,700 years later where we are, mm -hmm. if you're just there and you're trying to think like somehow there is this God, creator God named Yahweh who is trying to make something out of this. And like, if you're Tamar, like your life is a suffering. Yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm like the, the, the beautiful thing about the Bible is like, it doesn't, it takes no shortcuts. Yeah. There are no, there are no short, like nobody gets to spin around the earth backwards and no, <laughs> nobody is reversing time. Like they all got to pay the price. Yeah. Like it, it is like, it is, it's live action. It's the real deal. And that's, and it's the beauty of the Bible. And it's, and it's, and, and, and when we are, this is what this is part of what it means for us to immerse ourselves in the text. The more we do that, the more we see that like we are the text, the text is us. Hmm. And, and, and God is committed to us in our suffering. Yeah. I think that I'm only going to know life if I can just get rid of painful things. And God is apparently saying the way the world works because of how beautiful it is. When you all do what you do to it, pain is, the, is like, that's the price you pay for behaving the way you want to behave. Suffering is what you're going to have. And if you want to make your way back toward me, even with my assistance, you're going to have to like work your way through some stuff that you're not going to like. But you need to know that even that process is a process that I'm going to transform. And I'm going to be with you in the middle of it. And, and, in, and even in, and in that regard, even your understanding of the experience that you're having is going to be transformed. Mm. I think maybe what you just said might, might be shedding light on a sentence from your book that I, that I was having trouble making sense of. So let me, you say that in interpersonal neurobiology, hope serves as a proxy for the ever deepening attachment love of Jesus and the awareness of God's relational presence of loving kindness mm -hmm. is is that what you just said about God being present with us as we push back through the briars back to the path is that what you're talking about there when you when you yeah well let me just say this let's just I, I oh gosh my goodness like I I wish I'd had that metaphor in in like when I was writing like eight months ago like <laughs> we we're, we're, we're having to push back through the briars back to the path this notion that if I'm way off the path, stuck in the briars, but I have a field guide who shows up and it says like, come with me. Mm. But he doesn't just like take his machete and like clear the path out and now we just walk back to the main path. No, he's like, come with me. Because the briars like that's that's where you are. Yeah, you're not you, like that. that other, the, any any other world is make believe, mm, yeah. But it is in being with me, and I'm like, oh, okay. We've gone like three steps through the briars, and he's still with me. He's like, yeah, keep, let's go, keep coming. And I'm like, ah, I don't, I, I hate it. He's like, yeah, and he's like, yeah, these briars suck. This is really, this is really hard. Keep coming, keep coming. Mm. With every step I take, yes, it is true that there are more briars, but I am also. Having an experience of being in the middle of briars with someone who is so with me and continuing to walk through the briars that I began to anticipate the capacity to continue to walk through the briars and be okay. 
Yeah. Hope is what we like to say as far as the brain is concerned. Uh, hope is something that I imagine about the future. Right. But my future is always something that I construct from my experience right now that becomes my collective memory. Mm. I always remember my future. Did you say my collective memory with a V? Collective or collective? Col- collected memory collected got it okay right if i have if i have lots and lots and lots of moments being with my guide who's with me in the briars i'm establishing a remembered awareness that i can be in the briars and be okay mhm that's what I, that because that's my experience i i i'm having this experience. this is not fun but someone is with me in the middle of the not fun which means this becomes literally the neural network bank from which I draw where I anticipate a future, which yeah. means I can anticipate a future in which I can be, I can be in Briars yeah. and be okay in my future. That is what hope is. I'm forming hope because of what's happening in the hard places right now. And if I form hope about my future, that hope itself circles back around neurobiologically to encourage me to continue to do what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And so it becomes that kind of continual kind of repeated cycle of moving. So we talked about in the book because we're exploring a number of those verses in the first, the first five verses of Romans five, this uh, from, from glory to suffering to perseverance and so forth back to glory mm. because I can hope because of what's happening in the hard place right now over and over and over again. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. So stories are re reworking these pathways. Right. Right. They are. And 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 you can count on the, the notion that evil is not about to go quietly into the night. Yeah. And so the moment that you start to establish a more hopeful sense of the future, evil is going to want to find a way to take advantage of this and then have something else happen mm. to thwart your confidence in the field guide that has joined you in the briars. Yeah. Yeah. That is so good, Kurt. I I've got about six more very big questions, but we're we're out of time. Mm. Um I know you've got other places to be. And um so do you. I guess we'll, go ahead, Kurt. Oh, so do you. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um so and, uh, but I would love to I would love to come back and have more conversation. Well, let's let's plan on it. Uh yeah, maybe even before you write another book. Uh, yeah, I think that would be very easy to do. <laughs> great. <laughs> All right, Kurt. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope we can catch up again soon. Jonathan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.